puts you in the environment where these people lived and they tell you how many people lived in this space and it sort of it sort of bends your brain a little bit. Yeah, I wonder um, if we'll do that in backpacking communities. Right. <laughs> international. <laughs> do you remember hostel that hostel? <laughs> Actually, that could be really funny. That could be interesting. Well that that'll be that'll be the three films from now, you can do the International Hostel Museum <laughs> documentary. Deviate with Rolf Potts. Today is the latest in my ongoing series of interviews with people I quote in my new book, The Vagabond's Way, which I might point out makes a great gift for the travelers in your life as we find ourselves in the middle of the holiday season. Please ask for it at your favorite bookstore and please help spread the word by giving it a five-star review at Amazon or Goodreads. My guest today is the anthropologist and filmmaker Peggy Vale, who I first met while she was filming her 2013 documentary Gringo Trails, which explores the idiosyncrasies of global backpacker travel. I actually appear as a talking head in Gringo Trails. In the years since it came out, Peggy and I have become friends, and part of the fun of this interview is how it wanders off into some great spontaneous tangents. Together, we talk about the ways that backpacker travel is changing and how self-professed independent travelers have a way of creating their own beaten paths. We talk about how immigrants and refugees are travelers, too, and how it's important to listen to the stories of less privileged travelers, even as we seek to tell our own stories. We talk about how travel is a way to experience communitas, which is defined as an unstructured social setting defined by common goals where people exist as equals. We talk about the drug scenes that some travelers seek out and how those scenes have changed over the decades, and how what we call adventure travel is more about the feeling of danger than actual danger. The conversation took place at Peggy's office at New York University, and it was a lot of fun for me since it covered a lot of ground that I don't usually get to talk about. I start by reading Peggy the Gringo Trails chapter from my new book, The Vagabond's Way. Let's listen in. So Peggy, I'm going to start by reading the chapter that cites your work. It's the October 29th chapter, which is entitled, Travelers Create Their Own Distinct Global Culture. Uh, the epigraph is by Irv Chambers, Native Tours, 1999. Culture is no longer bound to place or ethnicity, but is also reflective of the processes and encounters that link different places and diverse people. The most unsettling scene in Peggy Vale's 2013 documentary Gringo Trails is a simple juxtaposition that illustrates backpacker travel culture at its worst. Having just displayed a veteran traveler's photos of Thailand's Hadren Beach as a beautiful and pristine backwater in 1979, the film cuts to the same beach crusted with beer bottles, plastic bags, cast-off glow sticks, vomit, and passed-out backpackers the morning after thousands of travelers had attended the island's 2010 full moon party. Events like full moon parties are unique to a global subculture that defines itself through travel, although, as the subtler scenes in Gringo Trails illustrate, this nation of world wanderers represents far more than its self-indulgent excesses. United by the fact that they are far from their own homes, travelers invariably find common ground as peripatetic outsiders and share an uncommon openness to each other as they try to stay open to the places they visit. Many places around the world, including Ubud in Bali, Lamu in Kenya, Ibiza in Spain, and Byron Bay in Australia, have, over the years, become so popular with travelers that they can feel like laid-back sister cities on the global vagabonding circuit. Indeed, even as we aim to engage with host cultures and avoid destructive beach party scenes as mindful travelers, it's not uncommon to befriend, say, Germans in Laos, Brazilians in New Zealand, Nigerians in China, Arizonans in Korea, or Koreans in Arizona. In a way, a journey can offer engaged global connections in ways that reach beyond the places we've meant to experience. So you made this film with that arresting image that's in the trailer to the film um, that's almost a shorthand for what backpackers can do negatively to a place. Um, how did you come into this story and decide to evoke it as a documentary um, filmmaker? Well, at the time, I, was, I had finished a dissertation looking at the role of travelers. It was called Rite of Passage, but R-I-G-H-T. Okay. It's a rite of passage to indicate the privilege of, of backpackers. Um, and I was looking specifically in Bolivia at the time for my dissertation. And um, it was looking specifically at the gentrification of tourism. Um, so I was kind of likening, comparing backpackers to, say, the artists in Williamsburg that I had, I was one, a part of, um, as a gentrifying force in urban environments. That, Williamsburg you know, being the Brooklyn. classic uh, part of Brooklyn in New York, yeah. Yeah, totally. You know, became a very hip place. And, but artists were among the, you know, those coming into this neighborhood to, that became the gentrifying 
front runner, I guess, you know, the, the pave the way for others to, to follow. And I feel like backpackers kind of have that similar role um, globally as the gentrifiers of tourism in particular locations. So I came into the film actually wanting to do more like an ethnography uh, on, on film, a visual ethnography of backpackers that exactly what you're talking about, you know, that they have the same cultures so much um, together experiencing other places all around the world. And it's and, the and similar I like, roots. I like this because it's an ethnography of the traveler rather than the travelee. And we often think of anthropologists going to a distant part of the world to try and describe the culture of that when in fact you're choosing, you know, the people you're traveling with, so to speak. So yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so I, you know, started out that way. We, we actually started the film way back in 1999 when I was in the midst of my dissertation research in, in anthropology. And then um, for various reasons, we put the film aside, filmed, you know, here and there a couple of years, but then had a big gap in between when we went back to film in 2009 and um, finished the film in 2013. So, so it was, you know, lots of time in between. But during that period, so much had happened in the tourism industry and, and tourism around the world that it was not just the backpackers I needed to look at. I realized the changes in these locations that they were going to over time. And that I could trace that and look at that because um, I had those that footage. Uh, so that's that's what ended up happening and why that became this arresting scene because I was seeing more the effects on cultures and environments, including on the backpackers' own cultures, right? So we as a group were going out and traveling to these places, but that has an effect on what we're doing too, right? If we're going to the same places and you know and kind of have a bucket list versus right versus seeking out other locations. We kind of follow the pack in some levels. We do. And I think there's a rhetoric of independence among backpackers. They compare themselves to package tourists. And by comparison, they feel a lot more independent when in fact, there's a very deep grooves of a travel trail that goes to places like Hadron Beach. Completely, completely. In fact, when we were doing the film, we had we initially had Molly feature in sorry, Burkina Faso, some travelers in Burkina okay. Faso, but ended up featuring Molly more because uh, for various reasons where the travelers went. And Timbuktu, right? <clears throat> yep, went to Timbuktu, yep. Yeah. Uh, and one of the travelers in Burkina Faso that we were following was a French young French traveler. His name was Cedric. I uh, can't recall his last name right now. But we ran into him years later in Bolivia, in like the southern town of Tupiza in Bolivia. And I just looked at him and I thought, like, this is exactly <laughs> what we were trying to think about with Gringo Trails and... Um, you know, in the anthropology of tourism is this same route, like what you just said. It's the same route everywhere. So the fact that we met him in Burkina Faso and years later see him again on the tourist route, on the backpacker route, really, in Tupiza, Bolivia, was um, surprising, but not. <laughs> well, I'm curious if our listeners have had this experience, because I just recall there's a woman named Suki who I met in Thailand who was walked into a hostel in Jerusalem months later, and there she was, you know. But uh, I also like to think that I'm independent of these well-worn um, grooves, but it's sort of hard to be independent of them because the hostels are cheap and convenient and they have, again, like is the theme of this chapter, they're full of other travelers like you. And it's fun to hang out with travelers, even as you're on the other side of the world, to hang out with people who are also from developed countries who are traveling the same way as you. Oh, completely. Um there was an instance, I remember the first time when I went to China, it's like the late 80s, um, and I was, you know, very much the only traveler in some of the areas, but there were other areas that had just started up kind of, you know, backpacker routes, right? And I remember running into a guy from the East Village, um, from the artist community there, I'm like, no, <laughs> go away. <laughs> so there's that even, you know, the, the, the kind of the artist traveler, and I, I think there's lots of parallels, but... Um, you know, but I, but I agree with you. It's just it, similar roots. And, and I wonder what you even, what you think now about the fact that so much of the, the guidebook oriented routes that made you feel random enough, and yet you're still kind of following the guidebook routes. What's happening today with the digital routes that are being forged online with communities, you know, like how different that is. Is it more segmented versus, you know, a much uh, more common route through the, that the guidebooks offered? Do you know what I mean? Well, I actually addressed that in The Vagabond's Way, and it's not scientific. You're an anthropologist, so you could probably confirm or deny this better than I can. But when I, in 1999, same year that you were in South America, I was starting my Southeast Asian travels, and I was very much following what was 
euphemistically called the banana pancake trail at the time. Banana pancakes being sort of this delicious snack that Europeans like to eat when they're in Thailand. I'm not sure how authentically Thai it is. But there was sort of an overland route that went from Bangkok down the Malaysian Peninsula, maybe to Singapore um, or different islands in Malaysia, and then hopped over to Sumatra and island hopped through Indonesia to Bali. Well, I went to 20 years later in 2019, I went to Sumatra thinking I would find that trail. Well, Sumatra has sort of been cut out of the trail because one, I think it's sort of influencer culture is influencing how people and where people travel. And cheap airlines allow you to fly from Bangkok or Singapore straight to Bali and not have to island hop over these places. And so in a weird and delightful way, I had Sumatra to myself, you know, that that old, you know, worst thing that can happen is another tourist type situation. <laughs> and so I actually wrote in my notes, as you were talking about 1999, 2013, as we have this, have this conversation, we're about to click over in 2023. It's been 10 years since Gringo Trails came out. And I'm curious to know what you have seen since Gringo Trails has come out and how the vernacular and the, and, and, and the visual and thematic travel for young people has changed. I, you know, I, I think it's changed less than I, than I thought it might have. Hmm. I think the difference is, you know, when Gringo Trails came out, it was really among the first, first films to look at the global backpacker culture, um, but also look at it in a way that was looking at both our desires and what we search for, you know, the, the community abroad experiencing these other places together, um, and why travelers seek out other travelers oftentimes. But, but also this, this, this notion, like I said, of gentrification, I think a lot of that's not so dissimilar. I think the big difference that I see with young travelers is it is just like an, an enormous difference that I see in the, in the ethnicities and the cultures of, mm. the, tra of the people who are traveling. Mm -hmm. So we're more tended towards uh, the wider side. You know, now we're seeing travelers from many different backgrounds. Um, within industrialized nations traveling. I think that's a big difference. Um, Class-wise, I probably still kind of similar, you know, more like middle, I would say middle class, double middle class, people that have that kind of time and money to be able to do that, mm -hmm. um, even if they're traveling on the cheap. Um, so I, I think that that big difference, that difference is changes the perspective of the traveler, you know, from what those particular experiences are and whatever the ethnicity or culture that traveler is coming from. Um, that's a big difference, you know, and I think that broadens our perspectives in general from the travelers community. When I started out, I assumed it was a youth travel culture because I was a young person. Um, is there age diversity on the backpacker trails? You know, I'm traveling less as a backpacker these days. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> you know, I know. And that's partially because as we've gotten older, mm -hmm. you know, we're traveling in many different ways. And I think a lot of times also we're traveling for work too. And that's a big difference, right, from the youth coming out. And, and so, um, yes, there's probably a diversity because people want to be able to experience things and they might not have that money. So they might be traveling like more along the lines of a backpacker, even if they're in their 30s or 40s. Um, but, and I think Airbnb has changed that dramatically, you know, so all these things like Airbnb, the kind of online travel routes that are being forged, I think are slightly more segmenting what was a larger kind of youth culture, common backpacker routes. I think that's what I've seen different also in addition to the diversity in the travelers themselves. Have you paid Does that make sense? It, I don't know if it it for you and what you've seen too. Well, uh, like you, I am, we're generationally similar. And so I don't travel as a youthful traveler. And hence I'm less likely to see youthful travelers because I'm not in the same cluster of hostels in this part of this city. Um, I have more options as a traveler. Um, we use the word community um, to describe ourselves as travelers. We travel into other communities. In fact, uh, earlier today, I was talking to somebody about the Lower East Side Tenement Museum, not far from here. And going there and realizing the population density in the year my grandmother immigrated to the United States from Germany is about the same as these um, suburbs of Mumbai, which are considered, you know, uh, shanty towns. Uh, and so it's sort of interesting to see that community, um, uh, well, local communities versus, go ahead. I just have to stop because I, I was actually one of their first education coordinator. I think I was their first education coordinator at the Tenement Museum. Really? Yeah, yeah. Um, back in 91, maybe it was, 1991. Um, I love that museum. I love what they've tried to do because they're showing basically poor people's culture, you know, and history when oftentimes, you know, objects aren't passed on the same way because you don't have the money, you know, people didn't have the money. So I love that they use the building itself versus, you know, the many, many objects that wealthier people pass on, 
pass on, right? Yeah, it puts you in the in in the environment where these people lived, and they tell you how many people lived in this space, and it sort of it sort of bends your brain a little bit. Yeah, I wonder uh, if we'll do that in backpacking communities. <laughs> right, the international. Do you remember hostel that hostel? <laughs> Actually, that could be really funny. That could be interesting. Well, that, that'll be that'll be the three films from now. You can do the international hostel museum documentary. <laughs> Well, actually, hosteling um, as a phenomenon is just over 100 years old. You know, the idea that hostelries historically were where sailors stayed or traveling merchants stayed. And they were called youth hostels at the outset because educators from Germany wanted to have a cheap way to travel with their kids, but not be a bunch of among a bunch of merchant seamen or traveling salesmen, but, but other kids. And that sort of boomed over the years in Europe. And so... Maybe listeners out there, if you want to start the International Hostling Museum, That's maybe right. one of those early hostels, that would be really, really interesting. <laughs> Let's see, where should it be? Maybe Nepal was one of the first places that had... <laughs> well, that would be the Hippie Trail right. Museum. Right, 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 right. The Hostling Museum would probably start maybe in Bavaria or someplace that's close to where the earliest hostels were. But maybe there should be a Hippie Trail Museum where like, the first room is in Istanbul, the next one is in Nepal, you know, the next one is in... in oh, thank God. Exactly. And then, and then maybe we have a banana pancake museum. Yeah. <laughs> cuisines of travel in these different time periods. <laughs> well, you can have banana pancakes in the Thailand museum, whereas in India you eat something that's it's more specific to what people maybe seek out banana pancakes there too. But. <laughs> and, then the, and then the Gringo Museum, and then the, we could go on and on. I think I think I think this is a there's, there's a new there's a new movement out there. I think that's gonna. <laughs> well, I love this tangent, Peggy, and this is why I started podcasting. You know, to, to jump on on tangents because I was thinking as you were talking about the Lori's Tenement Museum. Um, being a place where things of poor people were preserved, unlike like the Louvre, which is sort of the collections of rich people. Um, Iceland, I read a book about Iceland, which I actually quote in The Vagabond's Way, about how when Iceland was modernizing, um, people were throwing away all these folk artifacts that used to be central to their lives because they wanted new stuff. You know, they wanted consumer goods. And then the, the curators realized that that was what should be in the museums. And so Iceland, sort of the poor version of Iceland is in their museums now because people had the foresight to not throw away relics of their lives when they were a poor culture. And as they've gotten wealthier, you can see that literally your history was, this is us poor. And this is me. Like I went to Mumbai and I saw the shanty towns and I experienced them and they were interesting, but I didn't see them as something with any connection to me. But when I went to the Lower East Side Tenement Museum and did the math on the population density of the Lower East Side, when my grandma came through Ellis Island, my great-grandmother came through Ellis Island, it was about the same, right? And so you can make things abstract and being from a, a more modern culture, more industrialized culture, think, well, this has nothing to do with any aspect of my life or lineage, when in fact, it's just a couple of generations ago where it was almost exactly the same situation. And my great grandma made do in a way that she was 15 in a way that was interesting. Wow. That's, that is, that's pretty amazing that she came over at 15. Yeah. I mean, that's young. It, it is young. I think she had family that she was connecting with on the manifest. It said servant. Like that's, right. <laughs> when you're 15, it's not like you're an accountant. Yeah. Um, and so they saw her as a potential domestic. And I think actually, you know, if you read The Great Gatsby, we're, I'm really taking this tangent far, but why not? Yeah, why, why not? Uh, if you read The Great Gatsby... <laughs> it's the, traveling. We're traveling on a well, tangent. <laughs> it is travel, and it, it's very global, too, because the domestics in The Great Gatsby are Finnish. Like, the house ladies are from Finland, which must have been hemorrhaging an immigrant population around in the Jazz Age, right? Um, and Whereas now, you know, from Latin America, maybe people cleaning rooms are, are doing that. And my great-grandmother from Germany, probably her first job... Um, before, you know, when she was trying to make her own money was cleaning up after people. Like we talk about like expatriate communities, you know, like we look for all these, you know, commonalities, right? So the communitas, right? As we, as the backpackers have, right? But so did these immigrant communities or, you know, even communities today, like the digital nomads, they're probably connecting with other expatriates in these other places, right? So they're forming those communities as well. But in some ways, these were like, you know, the poor expatriates. <laughs> they probably were connecting with other people from these other cultures that they were experiencing common commonalities in those neighborhoods. Yeah. Well, I have a chapter, another chapter in this book quotes Irv Chambers again, but he wrote about doing anthropological research in the Hmong communities in Laos and sort of seeing it as an exotic for a while before he realized that these people had cousins living in Los Angeles. And then in a sense, people who are migrants, immigrants, refugees are also travelers. And I think we forget that sometimes. So I have, a, I have a chapter or two to remind the reader that 
We are traveling alongside domestic tourists, refugees. Some of the most interesting people I've met in the world were Sudanese refugees in Damascus, Syria in the year 2000, who spoke multiple languages and very, were very smart, but were sort of struggling to figure out where the rest of their life was going to play out. So, yeah, I think scholars like, <clears throat> like um, James Clifford has written about that in Roots. Okay. And, um, and I think of even Pico Iyer's writing, some of, he's touched on that a number of times. Um, and, and, and looking back at, you know, so we're oftentimes, we're, when we talk about tourists, we think, oh, tourists looking at other places wherever they're visiting. <clears throat> but this notion of, you know, the tourists looking or, or the locals looking at you as well, and or the different types of travel that you are experiencing together, like the, like the refugee that you're talking with, right? Um, but I was thinking, I, I was just recently at, um, at the Anthropology Annual Conference, the Association of American Anthropologists. And I went to a couple of the Anthropology of Tourism events. And, you know, Nelson Grayburn was there. You know, Nelson Grayburn is a longtime, longtime voice of the scholars of uh, tourism studies. And one of the things he was looking at or questioning is something that uh, I've been talking about for a long time with my colleagues, like whose story is it, right? But he called, but what he said was, whose imaginary is it? Mm. And I think that's a great way of positioning the difference in some ways between what's happening today is we're not just looking at the tourist imaginary and trying to figure out what that is, but what's the imaginary of that local person working on the beach? You know, whether it's the Haitian, you know, Haitian uh, local that's living in the Dominican Republic working on that beach, <laughs> or the, you know, so what are the what are those imaginaries um, versus just the tourist imaginary? So I think there's like a five-way street going on. It's not just a two-way street or a one-way street. And I think if you slow down enough, you'll see it everywhere. Because when I was writing Vagabonding in this little room in Renong, Thailand 20 years ago, most of the people cleaning our rooms were not Thai, but from Myanmar. Uh, and so it's uh, this interlocks in, in so many ways that, and I've been in the Dominican Republic and the hardest work, the back-breaking work done in, in the streets of uh, the Dominican Republic, which is itself not a rich country, the workers there are from an even poorer country, Haiti, where that the money they make doing that labor, I guess they're sending back to Haiti and, and supporting their families. So it's it, we, as travelers, we all, we're creating different kinds of communitas. Usually it's backpackers with backpackers, but sometimes we get little windows into other people who are also world wanderers. Completely, completely. And I think with, I mean, the difference with the backpackers and the communitas that they are forming, um, and the liminalities of, you know, what have you, um, is, is it feels like, it, you know, it kind of goes back to, I mean, the title of my dissertation, Rite of Passage, it's still similar to me in that way, in that, we do look at, you know, 1960, who was it? The, uh, uh, Genep was, uh, was a French scholar who really talked about rite of passage, R-I-T-E. Mm -hmm. But for me, the R-I-G-H-T rite of passage that mm -hmm. indicates the mm -hmm. privilege is yeah. really um, still in very much in is active. I mean, because they are traveling for the reason of, of both right of R-I-T-E and R-I-G-H-T because they have the right to do it. Um, and I think that's still true. You know, people have that. It's like going off to college to experiencing college with your college roommates in another place together, right? You're going off to these locations, whatever they are, and you're experiencing this travel in this other place together with people that are similar-ish to you, even if they're not from the same culture, they may be from the same class, which gives you already a distinction of being so having some kind of commonality. But also, if you're looking, you're, oftentimes backpackers are traveling in economically challenged areas and poor communities. So they have more in common with the other travelers that are from a different country themselves, but they probably are from similar classes. You know, so I think that, I think maybe, you know, if you're going to travel for work, you're going to seek out people in that other culture of more similar types of, you know, careers, things like that. So you're actually spending more time with them you know, from the same kind of backgrounds, I guess, so if that makes Yeah, there, there's just so many hairs to split here in a really fascinating way because traveling for work, the first time I traveled for work is when I went to Korea to teach English as a foreign language oh, right, right. for a couple a years. Long time, yeah. And that was sort of the dirtbag end of, of Westerners working in Korea. <laughs> dirtbag end, that's a great way to put it. <laughs> because it was all people who needed the money yeah. uh, and, and were willing to um, get comparatively less money, like the, the, a thousand or two thousand dollars a month we were making as recent college graduates was a ton of money, but we never hung out with the people working for the J bowls, for the big corporations, for the, for, for the managers and the people who were coordinating between this office and this office. We were just talking to kids and they, they, 
we had a bad reputation as teachers. I think because we were young and a little bit ignorant and we never had any money and we were a little bit arrogant too. <laughs> but I think we also experienced Korea in a way that be- went beyond what they were experiencing because actually it was very middle class because our students were kids who could afford to go to these private uh, study institutes that we taught at. But that was interesting. And then another thing that you were talking about just now is the idea that in a way we're, it's like going to college and our roommates, uh, our, our travelers are sort of like our college roommates, but on the other side of the world, because we share the fact that we have this communitas, we have a, this common goal. And it occurred to me, I've said this before, I never made the connection until just now that, um, we met so many of my good friends are people I've met from travel. You know, you grew up in life, you have your, your, your school friends from when you're young and then your college friends. And then it's harder to make friends as an adult unless you travel. And then suddenly communitas means you're a college roommate with the guy in the next hostel bunk in a way set the two. Right. And you've experiencing so, you know, because you're in that liminal space, you're in that border space and and where you're experiencing something outside of your structured everyday life, even though it has its own structure. Um, But you're experiencing this together with this other traveler then you're, you know, then, then you're seeing things together and experiencing together, which expands time and it's about discovery and you're going to connect and bond later, I think, you know? Yeah. Um, because it's a sticks in your mind. It's like, a, what are they, you know, they were called, you know, I, I think this is also, uh, was reviewing some of Rayburn's work just because I just seem see to speak, um, and thinking about like, you know, the trip, you know, whether like the acid trip, they call it the trip for a reason hmm. because, you know, they, cause you go off into a different place than you normally have in your everyday life, right? I don't know if you want to put that in there. <laughs> well, actually, I did, I'm just thinking about <laughs> I've talked about um, psilocybin mushrooms on different episodes of this podcast, and that literal thing came up. That oh. A journey is a metaphor. Actually, we use journey as a metaphor for, for our life's journey from birth to death. You know, we talk about different emotional journeys that we go through. And so, literally and metaphorically, the journey, it, a journey is very affecting to us as humans. And in Vagabonding, in my very first book, I write about how you can suddenly find yourself having an open-hearted talk with another traveler in Zambia that you would never speak. You'd be speaking in ways that you'd never speak with your friends back home, even though you love your friends back home. Because in a way, those assumptions of home don't count when you're on the road and you're in this new space. Yeah, it's like things are looser. You know, I remember following an Egyptian traveler once in the fil- in Gringo Trails early on. Um, also, I, I don't think he was in, and ended up in the film, but... He, but that was one of the things he, all of a sudden he was dying his hair. He was, you know, he was going to get a tattoo. I mean, all these changes he could never do, you know, in his family growing up or in his community. But, you know, that idea of just breaking out and doing all these things that you wouldn't normally do. But I going, I just want to go back to the idea of space and try and, and, and space and time, because I feel like those, these periods on the road like this, that you're experiencing with these other people I really feel like that difference in time that expands it because you're not experiencing the everyday of what you normally do. So it's all about discovery, right? And, and I think that that's, I think that that's what's special about travel is that discovery and expansion of time and, um, and experiencing that with other people is also very, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. It is. And, and, and again, I think in the chapter, I bring up a, a negative example from your film, but it's not all <laughs> negative. I think in, in the clickbait era, we see the negative thing and we assume that's the story. When in fact, there's, there's different things happening. I quote another book called Backpack Ambassadors. Have you heard of Backpack Ambassadors? I have not. No, it's a good, good title. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's basically the, the theory, his theory in that book is that backpackers going hostel to hostel in Europe sort of presaged the European Union in that these travelers didn't see themselves as British and German and Italian in the hostel, but as young people. Mm-hmm. And Europe, his thesis is that it became less nationalistic because these people at a very tender time in life were interacting as friends with people from the other side of the same continent. And that communitas became a part of the historical arc of certain aspects of Europe. So that was really interesting to hear about. Yeah, that's great. No, I'll take a look at the book. Because yeah. um, I'm, I'm going off to study, I mean, sorry, I'm going off to uh, teach... Um, in NYU Prague again and teaching an anthropology of tourism course, which you came to visit last year. We I had, zoomed in last you year. You zoomed in and we had all the students were from NYU Abu Dhabi. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, I structured the syllabus kind of like a pre-departure. So it was all about, you know, what are our influences and cha- influencing our perspectives and then the journey itself. So we went on lots of tours mm. and lots of uh, visiting different places in Prague and then the return, which was thinking about like the role of travel writing and blogging and all these other things that help us to digest what we've 
what we've seen and what we've understood and heard. No, that sounds really interesting. And so your students were Emiratis? They were, they were from a lot of different places, but they were all students at, um, in Abu Dhabi, but they were from, we had a couple of Egyptian students. There were Emiratis, um, student from Nepal, actually, there was a student Mm. from Nepal there. So it was, you know, a mixed group of students, but from, you know, kind of more regionally, a little bit more regionally focused. Um, This this is interesting because I've, since I've been based in Kansas and some, since I met my wife in Kansas, I've been thinking about Kansas as a global place. And I thought, well, why isn't there an NYU Kansas? That's sort of a joke. <laughs> well, <I guess> it, <laughs> no, not another Kansas. Well, just like it's, it's globalized in some ways, but I think there's some parts of the United States that are not in conversation with the metropoles as much. But my wife and I are not alone in Kansas of being people who are fully global and fully local, you know, that we are close to the land in Kansas, but we also fly to the side of the world. And it's not that old stereotype of the, the backwaters are full of people who don't travel much and don't read newspapers. But this conversation is becoming very global all over the place. So Completely. And, and you know, again, like you, going back to just the idea of whose story is it, uh, mm-hmm. which, you know, we were doing a lot. We were doing that a couple of times uh, as a theme, both at the Margaret Mead Festival, started by an anthropologist. Been there. Uh, that's right. You. That's right. Um, but that, that, but that notion of just you know who, who's telling whose story. I think that's what's really changed in a lot of things today. Is that we're seeing all these different layers of stories of you know the Kansas story. It's not just this idea that people that you've seen people have this perspective or imaginary mm. of Kansas, and you've tried to like dispel that with many different uh, depictions of what Kansas is and can be and has been. Well, oftentimes I'll have guests, not all the time, but they're like, let's shoot guns. And it's like, why do you want to shoot guns? <laughs> like, it's like, isn't that what you do in Kansas? And it's like, well, some people, but like, why, why is it the first thing you want to do? Why don't we go to a restaurant or, you know. <laughs> and the we'll... fact that they would think you would do that. <laughs> right, right. Well, yeah. I mean, like, this is so complicated too, because my great grandma on the other side of the family had was the best shot in the family. She had a shotgun for shooting birds or whatever, you know, and when she was living in Illinois. And so there is an urbanization narrative there that used to have a gun for hunting. And now there's this rhetoric of guns for protection. And um, just, I think you can't look at any one place. And this is talking about like, whose story is it? Not just whose story it is, but what story are you going to tell of all the stories? Right. Right. Um, And so you, you, and who has the privilege to tell that story? There's that too, that level, right? Like, Who's, you know, who's in, who's in the power to write that, you know, travel book or the history book or the, you know, or the cultural like depiction or, you know, all these sorts of things. So there's so many layers. Or or for me to talk about my shotgun great-grandmother or my immigrant great-grandmother, I know that you have your Irish ancestors are, are stories you're trying to evoke. And that's a weird privilege. It's the privilege of the present. And you sort of have to look through that lens of history and try to understand how they experience the world as, the world as humans. Yeah, because they're all, they're in us. Yeah. You know, that's how I look at it. I feel yeah. like we there's a, there's a legacy to our ancestors that carries forward, and and we often forget what they might have experienced, and 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 it's kind of like traveling. You travel back in the time of your own ancestry, which hmm. I think a lot of these DNA tests are having people kind yeah. of think about. Yeah, but it's like traveling. You know, so it's, it's like discovery of what these cultures and these places and uh, time periods might have been like. I think it might be another a, tangent. <laughs> an, another tangent. No, I love it. There's a kind of specificity if you go genealogical with your travel. My, I'm the son of a genealogy nerd. Uh, he found out we had uh, a Swedish ancestor who was enslaved, who was kidnapped and sold in Virginia. I remember. I remember that because we talked. Because I have a, the Swedish ancestor from New Sweden, okay. and we talked about that. Maybe we're others. I know. We should uh, check. We should check on that. Yeah, and, and so there's different. I know that when the DNA test came out, uh, this was very early in the process. I'm a Spike Lee fan. He he had taken a DNA test and found that that his he was part Cameroonian. That like he found oh. some geographical specificity to the African diaspora that created his American family. And I thought that was really interesting. And I'd read a Spike Lee book about Cameroon. Oh, totally. Completely. Yeah. Yeah. I think Melvin, Melvin found out he was, well, at least they they changed the percentages all the time. Right. Mm. But that he was 25% Nigerian. Melvin. So so your husband, Melvin Estrella, (laughs) who's your, who's your partner in many senses of the word. Yes. Yes. Uh, part Nigerian part. Yeah. Like 25%. He was like, so surprised. Uh That's cool. Yeah. He must have some uh, um, indigenous ancestry from the Caribbean too, right? He does, yeah. he's. It would be maybe his third great-grandparent, something about that, like based on the percentages. Okay. I'm also yeah. a genealogy nerd, I guess. <laughs> right. And we're talking about two people that we know and love. My listeners are like, who's Melvin? <laughs> but, but, 
<laughs> but um, that's interesting <laughs> to hear. And uh, there is some specificity. I think that there's some groups that were brought under the under the umbrella of slavery have less narrative specificity where they came from. So these DNA tests can really diversify. And of course, my ancestor was brought from from Sweden under, the, under as a slave, but in a way that, that is such a small percentage of my ancestry. You know, speaking of West Africa, actually, you were talking about Burkina Faso versus Mali mm. earlier on in the conversation. Mm-hmm. And this is right after we were talking about Hadrian Beach. And when you said Mali, I thought you meant ecstasy. Oh, ha! <laughs> just, just for a flash, I thought we were going to be talking about drugs. But I want to come back to that because I know that traditionally that banana pancake trail, that hippie trail, sort of had drugs as part of the communitas. Oh, totally. Yes. Yes, definitely. And do you think that's still a part of it? Or do you think that's a bygone thing? Because, you know, hash sort of fueled the hippie trail. Mm-hmm. And Molly Ecstasy kind of fueled the, the beach party scene. So. Oh, yeah. I, I can't imagine it's gone away. Hmm. You know, probably maybe different drugs, you know, mm-hmm. like maybe different um, formats, <laughs> so to speak. But um, I don't think that's gone away. Because um, I haven't seen it go away in youth culture in general. Yeah. So at least in industrialized nations and, you know, all sorts of... So I, I don't think so. You know, I just don't know which drugs they're doing right now. Yeah. You know, as part of the as part of the roots. Do you? I don't. But I knew, do know that the conversation about drugs is much different. I mean, I grew up with Nancy Reagan saying, "Just say no." Yeah. And now weed is legal in most states. You know, and and uh, psilocybin mushrooms have been medicalized in a very useful and promising way. And then um, there's the shamanistic tours that people do. Yeah. You know, there's there's all that. Uh, <laughs> Right, kind of and new so, agey though. Well, uh, other, take on it though. Other drugs have have plummeted in popularity because meth has a, a, a poor association. You know, it's right. sort of a, it's hollowing out communities in certain parts of America. There's a version of meth in Thailand when I was there years ago, so it's less glamorous. It's a little bit more desperate. Um, so even in drug scenes, there's a class base, right? Yeah, right. There's class based drugs. Well, actually, I mean, going back to the opioid, we're well, not going back to. We haven't talked about the opioid crisis, but in relation to this, it's a tangent, but it's related. I'm all uh, about <laughs> all right, all right. Um, but the opioid crisis here, it's like when it was, you know, when it was African Americans, you know, there wasn't the same call to attention. As soon as it became a, a larger percentage or a large percentage of white people that are getting affected, then all of a sudden you had this, this, you know, attention to it as a crisis. Mm. And, and that shows you just the difference in the class, the class differences and, 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 and so forth and um, discriminate, discriminatory nature of what can happen. What's the association of certain drugs? Because mm-hmm. psychedelics were somehow sort of J. Edgar Hooverized into some sort of horrible thing, when in fact, yeah, you know, recreational psychedelics are far less interesting than psychedelics as as an, as a personal experience. And then yeah. there's a racialized component to marijuana, and it's called marijuana because it sort of a, makes it seem like a Mexican, you know, thing. You know, right, right, right. Cannabis or whatever. <laughs> Which is that's interesting. <laughs> Yeah. about that um, and, and going and going just that idea of the trip like that that it mm. is the journey right it's some journey you're taking um, and, it, and it goes hand in hand with journeys sometimes because if on the hippie trail you were in istanbul you were probably going to try some hash mm-hmm. and i'm sure that's still i'm sure 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 it still happens but then uh there's other parts if you go to a certain party in india or or thailand then it's going to be molly or whatever well do you, you remember in, in in you know in our era of traveling when we were in, in our youth time i remember going like backpacking to amsterdam for the first yeah. time and it was so exciting because they had hash cafes yeah. you know and that was just like that was incredibly exciting for an american right you mm. know who didn't of course that was like it was totally illegal then so to see it legalized and that you could actually sit in a cafe and do that i remember that was a that was a big part of like for for uh, young travelers going there. It occurs to me that that those sort of URL pass assumptions that we took into as travelers in the eighties and nineties have shifted because that was that was what you did in Amsterdam. Well, now you can do it in Denver. You know? Yeah, um, <laughs> exactly. That, that is just the, that what what made that exotic and gave it a certain kind of specificity, like maybe. 400 years ago, you went to Amsterdam for the tulips or something. But like drugs used to be such a part of the vernacular and the communitas community of travel. What are some things as an anthropologist you look for that are in conversation between travelers that are more common on the road than at home? Like what have you seen travelers doing to exercise their communitas besides drugs? Yeah, right, right. Uh, I actually think photography still has plays a big part in in experience like with the experience together but now there's like i don't know if it's even I don't know, competitiveness but 
there is that capturing, the, the idea of capturing, but instantly, like Instagram, but, you know, or TikTok, like, what is doing these, in these moments, like, at the moment happening, whereas previously you didn't have that instantaneous mm. experience already showing up online, right? So I think that's a big difference in how travelers are, are experiencing their communitas together is that it's an instantaneous gratifying or gratification that is solidified online, that you can see it immediately um, and then share it immediately. So I think that that's, that's changing things. So even if somebody's possibly, say you're you know, in, in Mongolia and you're, you're online looking for the next place you're going and you're seeing all these Instagram photos or, or what have you in, um, in Tibet or, or in mm. South Korea or wherever that might happen, I think that might even contribute to you know, um, not only the togetherness, the communitas, but um, also the kind of forging into other places for travel. Well, I, there's a section in The Vagabond's Way which is about why we have sightseeing. Mm. Uh, and it traces back to a very specific Anglican minister in the late 18th century, I think, who he decided that the grand tourists should seek beautiful vistas. Well, then a few decades later, the, f the camera was invented. And then we, it, uh, travel is a very visually oriented thing. And I quote Susan Sontag's on photography quite a bit. If there was a sequel to that, it might be like sort of a smartphone version. Because when I was in Sumatra a few years ago, as compared to 20 years earlier when I was a backpacker, there was sort of an ethic of travel, like ask permission before you take a picture. It's invasive. It also shows your privilege. Like in Southeast Asia, the local people didn't have cameras. And so if you were an ethical traveler, you were careful not to be exploitative in your photos. Well, when I was in Sumatra 20 years later, I love Sumatra, by the way. Oh, Sumatra! That was one so of good. my most special travel memories as well. Yeah. I love Sumatra. Yeah. I, I was there for a month, and I could have stayed same yeah. for a decade, you know. But when I was there, I found that local kids asked for my picture as much as they did there because they, they had cameras on their smartphones, mm. and they might not be, have been ex expensive as the smartphones available to, to teenagers in America. But I was as interesting to them as they were to me. And I have a bunch of selfies with like random people on the street and, and, uh, you know, my wife will look at them and it's like, Oh, who's this? It's like some kids. They wanted a picture with me. And so I think that old colonial, um, awkwardness that came with pointing the camera at someone has been reversed as, as, um, the camera has become a more common device. That's part of your phone, which is also part of your GPS. You know, um, it's, it's, it's interesting how much this travel world has changed, Peggy, since you and I set off as backpack. Oh, so changed. It's so changed. I, I, just, but even those power relations, mm. you know, the relationships, and because that is a power relation, you know, of like who can take whose image and vice versa. And so now that it's, now that it's a reciprocal mm. action mm. and it's geo, it's geotagged, right? So, you know, and they, you know, I, and even, you know, face, face recognition, who knows, like then that young kid who grows up and be like, let me see if I can find that face on the internet. We can no longer be the person who's just sort of harvesting images of otherness in a one way direction. Yet, because the digital feedback loop is so small, we tend to post idealized images, not just of ourselves, but the places where we travel. And I'm amazed by how many times I'll see travel photos that don't involve anybody who lives there or any neighborhoods that don't look perfect and like the stereotypical National Geographic vision of what that neighborhood is supposed to be like. Which is completely the framing out device, right? Hmm. It's like you frame out what like appears to be modernity even itself, yeah. Yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, so, so it's, it, it, at some level, that kind of connects back, though, to the settlers who were claiming, you know, th there's nothing out, you know, in the, in the West and, and instead of recognizing and understanding all the cultures that they were mm. plowing through and, and um, creating genocide among, um, it was this notion, it's just the land, right? Right. So there's a certain kind of, you know, coloniality to that too, this framing out device, right? Well, I was, I was talking with someone else recently about the Explorers Club here in New York and how you, to, to qualify to be in the Explorers Club, you had to discover something. But I think if we went through like the role of the Explorers Club back decades and centuries, probably the person who claimed to discover this had a guide who lived there, right? Yeah. You know, the, yeah. basically every place that was discovered on behalf, in fact, I have an, 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 an epigraph in one of the chapters where basically the Inuit people helped Europeans discover the Arctic, right? Yeah. That basically they're using Inuit technologies to stay alive while discovering the places where the Inuit already lived. Right. So, 
exactly. It's like, who discovered what? <laughs> or the climbers, the Sherpas that made it up Mount, you know, whatever, you know, like one of the one of these destinations for climbing that were there first. Mm. But who gets the credit is, you know, the European explorer or something. Same, same, you know, well, it's the same all the time. It's like, who gets the credit for these these ideas of what's discovered and what is new and, and so forth? Well, I think you, we surround ourselves with tools as travelers, including warm clothes in the Arctic yeah. and sandals in the tropics. But we also surround ourselves with a vernacular. Mm-hmm. And I think it was important for these men to be seen as explorers, air quote explorers, even though all they were doing was exploring, discovering on behalf of people who, back home who didn't know it as well as them. And even backpackers have um, a rhetoric that, that says, well, I'm off the beaten path. And it's like, but are you really? Oh, yeah. Would this be off the beaten path if... if there's a hostel here, and you're saying that we're off the beaten path in a room full of people from industrialized countries in Central America, right? So this rhetoric is a huge part of travel, I would imagine. Huge part. It's still there. It's been there since the beginning. Um, but that whole idea, the whole idea that you're discovering this place, you know, that ro- the, the virgin territory, this, this notion of discovery, when people have been living there for a long time, they probably traveled even from neighboring countries or from neighboring communities to these locations where the travelers themselves are claiming discovered (laughs) or rather that they're the only ones there. There are no other travelers there. That rhetoric is very much active and has not changed. It has been so similar. I think even like, I think one of the things that I noticed that changed, you know, looking through some of the new literature is the role that scholars have right now and sometimes in replicating the tourist industry's own marketing initiatives, like mm-hmm. the role of sustainability and how we talk about that environmentalism culturally that often also sometimes negates people's experiences and privileges the environment without people, mm-hmm. right? This notion of sustainability, but it's really like that word sustainability itself to me that's used so much in tourism and tourism scholarship is actually like the word tolerance. It's like a non-change, you know, you're frozen in time, things aren't changing, you're not trying to actually make change, you're just maintaining and, you know, accepting something. You you mentioned the the, the idea that an individual from Europe is discovering something. I think our ideas of individuality are are a modernity thing, you know, sort of a post-industrial revolution thing. And in another part of the Vagabond's Way, I talk about Saul Bellow, who infamously said, you know, there, he was trying to talk about, he was trying to defend the Western canon, and he said, well, who's the Proust of the Papuans, you know? Um, <laughs> Instead and, of who's the Papuan that writes a certain way of the Papuans. <laughs> right, right. Well, just, or, just the assumption, he was, he was lambasted for saying that, but the assumption is that, well, like, he's, he's Saul Bellow's from Chicago, you know, like... <laughs> Like who's the Proust of of Chicago? I mean, it's just like you 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 you're, you're playing geographical games with things. One, but two, the idea that an individual writes a book and it's his is very very new because the stories we've been sharing for ten thousand years or more have been collective ones, and and pop ones they share their stories, and the person who tells the story is the person who does the best job of telling the story, not the person who wrote it. And in fact, their great grandparents probably don't know who wrote it. They were telling different iterations of the same story. So I think that there's a very individualized way we live now mm. that superimposes onto travel in so many ways from the discovery rhetoric to sort of the marketing oriented to, to sort of the idea of um, discovering yourself, you know, mm-hmm. even discovering is a word. And some of my listeners will might think, well, I sort of discovered things in myself when I travel. Well, that, that's a good thing. Right. But, but I think the oftentimes um, we, we're in this bubble of individual and oftentimes we have to sort of pop that bubble a little bit to travel at a deeper level. I, I, I totally agree. I mean, I think also that this, like just what you were just saying about discovering something within oneself, which is, a, is also a big part of the travel experience as people talk about at least. Um, but, it, but it's, but it's you're, in some ways you're having to use other people, you're using elsewhere hmm. to find out something in yourself, right? So, so people just become kind of these... Um, if it's only about you know? discovering it yourself. Yeah. 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 And I think sometimes, again, the marketing speak that has suffused everything in the world that what at first we think is discovering something in ourselves is something that we'd be convinced we need to discover when in fact it's when we pop that bubble of separation and we're a little bit lost and we're trying to bargain in a language we don't understand and we're making mistakes and suddenly we're leaving our, our, our days and our hearts open to people who live there then there's another level um, 
that goes beyond sort of the marketing narrative versus the personal narrative. I mean, I'm all for getting lost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's one of the best ways. One of the best ways to travel is just to allow yourself to get lost sometimes, uh, and not have these preconceived both roots, but also mental roots. You yeah. know, and kind of and your perspective uh, from all these other, you know, all these other experiences that you had that that come into your perspective, your imaginary, right? Well, yeah, you, you allow yourself to be surprised. Yeah, um, yeah. Surprise your own discoveries in a, in a different kind of way. Mm-hmm. Not not that the discovery is the final point of what you're going for. Yeah. Right? It just happens along the way. Right. And discovery means that you have a compass and a route, whereas being lost means that you're off that and that you're suddenly open to discover what you hadn't expected to find, which yes. is probably more important anyway. Yeah, yeah. Have you read uh, Rebecca Solnit's uh, Field Guide to Getting Lost? I have not. Okay. I have not. I um, should because I, you know, it's time to get lost again. <laughs> yeah, everybody who's listening to this, I go get lost. It's, it's a great. I think we have anxieties about it too because the travel industry, for good and bad, has been saying we're here to help you not get lost. Mm-hmm. We're here to help you not get uncomfortable. We're here to keep you healthy, which has its advantages for sure. But it's not until we are, until we push through that level of you know a buffer that the buffer, we, yeah, yeah, the safety buffer. Yeah, yeah, I. Used, I call. I used to call like there were some there were some tours like in the mining industry, for instance, in, in Bolivia, and I called it structured danger mm-hmm. because it allowed you to get dangerous feeling enough and learn about the culture, you know, the the indigenous cultures that were working within these mines, but then turning it around themselves and instead mining tourists. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it was it was that notion, right? It's the danger we plan for ourselves. Adventure travel, as marketed, is the adventure we plan for ourselves. And I quote in the Vagabond's Way of Bureau Markham, who grew up in East Africa and would take big game hunters hunting because she was a pilot and she could fly a plane. And she was with, um, you know, the indigenous people in that part of the world who hunted with bows and arrows. And here are these sort of fat millionaires shooting these giant shotguns and falling on their butts. And she wrote in such a way that it sort of underscored the absurdity of this adventure and danger that these guys had created for themselves that made little sense to the people who lived in East Africa and were, you know, making a, a money off of the, the big game hunters, but we're just thinking, this is weird. Like, why are they doing this? Exactly. Why are they putting themselves in these positions? Right. Right. Yeah. 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 And, and so I think there's a lot. Um, and, and some people who love a very physical kind of adventure travel don't like hearing this because it is fun to kayak or go for a long hike or, bungee jump <laughs> bungee stuff like that's great too but there there is almost by necessity a rhetoric of safety because the outfitter doesn't want to lose a few people every time they go into the mountains exactly so it's so it's that it's offering the structured danger where you feel it's kind of like you know some ways the, the way the guidebooks offer a you know a feeling that you're actually random enough but yeah. it's a structure to the randomness yeah you know or a structure to this danger that you're going to experience so that you might you're not going to actually go over the cliff <laughs> You're going to go to the edge of the cliff and we've got you. Yeah. It was almost like sneaking out of your house when you're a teenager, but you're only, you only get a few blocks or miles away, but basically you're, you're still almost in your comfort zone, but it feels really exciting. Yes. And and indeed it is for all those teenagers out there. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Not that we're telling you to run away, but you know, (laughs) bring your smartphone, bring your smartphone, leave a note, leave a note. (laughs) No. uh, Yeah. I think that, that really. And it makes sense, but it doesn't make sense. It, it makes sense in sort of an assertive way, way that, of course, adventure travel has to have mechanisms of safety or the people who benefit from it would lose clients literally and figuratively. But at the same time, and I wrote this in, in Vagabond in my first book, that sometimes an adventure could be going to the bus station, finding a town you don't know, and going to that town and seeing what happens when you get there. Yeah. And yeah. That, that has rankled some bungee jump style adventure travelers. Like, come on, you know? But, but really, then you're suddenly, you're thrown into a place where you don't have the answers already. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not mm-hmm. looking for the answers that are in your guidebook or in your Instagram feed. But it's like, all right, didn't know what this town was this morning. But um, now I need to find a hotel. I need to find a restaurant. And you're going to rely on your personness. Yeah. You know, and that other person, you yeah. know, that you're meeting there. And, and I think that's a beautiful, a beautiful experience to have. Yeah. Expand on that. Your yeah. personness. Yeah. Well, it's just because it's down to you. You know, it's kind of like, it's just down to you, you know, and how you're going to deal with these situations. So, so it goes back to not what your culture is necessarily, not what everything else is. It's just... You as an individual having to deal in this experience, in this particular situation, um, 
and find a way out and find a way in and find a way out and find a way over and, um, and find your way, essentially, but on your own, kind of, you know, with the help of the people you're meeting, possibly. I think your personness and the personness of other people is the best technology, more so than the smartphone. Because people forget this, um, that we're so adaptable, you know, as, as travelers and as humans, um, we're pretty good at giving, getting through difficulty because we are the humans who have survived centuries and millennia of difficulty. And that it's pretty easy to get into a haze where you look down at your phone every time something uncomfortable happens, when in fact the human body is this great technological adaptive <laughs> where you can figure out where to sleep and eat and make friends and, and all of that stuff. And, and it's empowering. Yeah. It's actually really empowering once you are making those decisions for yourself and not relying on the phone. I was thinking the other day, just on the subway and watching like every single one of us, myself included, we're all looking down for, for your neck alone. I wonder what's going to happen to all of us. But, <laughs> but I, I mean, I really do want, I, I really do think like, it, you know, there are, there are even camps now, these camps that are, I had a student make a film about, um, digital detoxing where they went to a camp oh, where they, everybody had to put their phones away, mm -hmm. things like that. But, and I think there's a desire for that, but I think we literally are so attached that we forget we can rely on ourselves and, and what we actually, what our intuitions are, what our knowledges are, what, you know, what our communication skills are. So get, yes, getting back to the personness, I think, um, I think it would be, would be a good thing for, for all of us to experience here and there. Oh my God, it is. And it's easier said than done um, because I'm in New York for like, I love New York. I've never properly lived here um, for like the 50th time. And I must, I'm probably more lost than ever because instead of thinking, oh, here are my coordinates, I'm, I keep looking at my phone. Yeah. My, my phone has desensitized me to where I am in New York, which is a very easy, Manhattan in particular is a very easy place to know where you are. Yet I, who have talked about this before, am still beholden five books into writing about travel uh, of my smartphone as the electronic umbilical cord that wherein I stop using my hippocampus and just start using a less useful part of my brain by looking at my phone all the time. All right, and I do the same thing. I am so connected. I'm tethered, tethered to the phone. Yeah. Um, and I also have the desire lately, I'm just, I'm wanting to, you know, to not be so, so reliant for those reasons. I was thinking just like when the calculator came out and people stopped counting <laughs> or just, you know, any of these technologies where you then, you, you stop using that part of, like you say, stop using that part of your brain because you don't have to. So, you know, the more these things uh, like help us, you know, help us ostensibly in society to navigate the world and to navigate what we're doing every day, they also do allow us to kind of, again, not rely on what we can do and what the, what, you know, what the capacities that we have can can help us with. This conversation is so old that Plato actually writes about this in the context of the written word. I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing it, uh, but he basically was worried that people would not use their memory. They would stop memorizing poems and plays when they had it in front of their eyes. And so this technological pivot has always been happening. There's always been anxiety. And, uh, you know, just like I'm not going to stop reading, using paper as a technology, unless maybe the phone replaces it, that this I don't, I don't, I hardly ever do now. I do. I write everything. <laughs> do you? Yeah. I write a lot on my phone. Yeah. Yeah. I, I take field notes on my yeah. phone. I, I take audio notes as much as I write them down. And so even I, who can speak to the pre-digital age, I'm still beholden in many ways as a travel writer to digital technologies. Um, I, I podcasts have replaced TV oftentimes for me. Um, not, not fully books. I've been reading as much as ever, but yeah, the fact that you have this entertainment console that is far stronger than your, your best 1970s hi-fi wall-sized uh, extravaganza is, is changing everything. So It does, though, help me exercise, I have to say. <laughs> oh, yeah? Because, like, it's enough. It's, it gives me the distraction so I can do the exercise oh, and okay. not get, right. you can, you can listen not to get bored. Right. Exactly, exactly. Listen to entire seasons of it's the one better. It's a good bet. It's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, as we circle back to the top of the hour, and I love how we bounced all over. Oh so my god, all over, all over the place. <laughs> yeah. What might you leave us with, just as someone who has seen as a social scientist how travelers act? How might we practice communitas in a way that is ethical and deepens the travel experience and our relationship with each other and the relationship with the places we're visiting. You know, just simply the first thing that came to mind was don't forget your surroundings, you know, both the people and the place of where you're visiting. So while we may be enjoying each other as fellow travelers, you know, on the road together, maybe I just feel like don't, don't forget. Yeah. Don't forget your surroundings, like pay attention, 
So pay attention and, and that will only enrich both your experiences with other travelers, but also um, in the places that you're visiting. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including information about Peggy Vale's film Gringo Trails, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Cedar Van Tassel, who also does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. 